Hi there and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. It's well known that pharmacokinetics change dramatically in sepsis. So what can we do to make sure our patients are receiving sufficient levels of antibiotics to ensure they are adequately treated? Jason Roberts is a world-renowned intensive care pharmacist and researcher, and he joins me to talk about the ensuring effective antibiotics are delivered in severe pneumonia. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Todd. Thanks very much for the opportunity to talk to you. Jason, what are some of the uh, pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic changes that um, lead to difficulties with drug dosing in patients with sepsis? Okay, so yeah, it's a, it is the number one important question for this specific topic and, of course, is a lecture in its own right. Uh, the way that I'd probably describe it is just from, um, firstly from the perspective of what is pharmacokinetics. So that's the relationship between a dose of drug that's administered and a concentration that's measured. So then the question then becomes, well, what are the factors that cause for altered concentrations in critically ill patients? And this is all physiologically mediated, uh, as well as some, some treatments that we provide as well. So for a drug which is renally cleared, then the whole spectrum of renal uh, disease, as well as augmented renal clearance, really can dramatically affect what concentrations of drug are present. And of course, with a drug which is water soluble and someone who we give a lot of fluid resuscitation to, that essentially just has a dilutional effect on the drug, um, which we would describe from a pharmacokinetic perspective as having an increased volume of distribution. But essentially, it's really diluting the drug and resulting in a lower drug concentration. So it's really that interrelationship between altered clearance and changes in volume of distribution, which result in these altered drug concentrations. Now, the reason that altered drug concentrations are important, of course, is that antibiotics, like all drugs, have very clear concentration effect relationships, whereby small changes in the antibiotic concentration can be associated with them not killing the bacteria, them not inhibiting the growth of the bacteria. And therefore, in a critically unwell patient, that means that you're not going to get pharmacological efficacy, and that can be quite problematic. And so that's, of course, the whole focus of why pharmacology, particularly in the context of antimicrobials, is important in uh, critically ill patients because they have very high morbidity, very um, high mortality. I mean, we really consider them to be still quite unacceptable and antibiotic dosing and making sure that all patients are receiving an appropriate exposure of drug is really an achievable way that we should be trying to reduce some of the, that burden associated with infection. What about the pharmacodynamic side of things? How do antibiotics interact with bugs and, and patients effectively uh, in the context of critical illness that's different from baseline? Okay, well, there's two, probably two different ways that I'd describe uh, this. So from a pharmacodynamic perspective, you, know, you have the, the job of the antibiotic or antibacterial is to, to kill the bacteria. Uh, but also they can have some adverse effects, which is you know, the, the toxicokinetic aspect. Um, so th that's relevant because, you know, that still is a dynamic uh, interaction that can occur. But speaking firstly about the, the microbiological effects, so different pathogens or different species of bacteria and different um, uh, bacteria within a population have different levels of susceptibility to an antibiotic. And of course, we measure that uh, in the microbiological lab with um, a, a test called a minimum inhibitory concentration test, which 
essentially exposes a, a, a bacteria to a fixed concentration of drug for about 16 to 20 hours. Now, the, the higher that concentration is that's needed to kill the bacteria, then, of course, the, um, the less susceptible it is because you need more drug. But from a pharmacodynamic perspective, there is very clear concentration uh, exposure relationships which are associated with better effects, and but they are all underpinned by that measure of the susceptibility of the pathogen to the antimicrobial. So all of the PKPD relationships um, involve some sort of pharmacokinetic exposure over the MIC, and that's that in the indices, the, the PKPD index for each of those antibiotics which describes uh, what target we should be aiming for for them. And so the upshot of this is that uh, as the uh, a bacteria, as it becomes less susceptible, maybe because of resistance emerges or maybe the next time we, we, we treat them that um, we've selected uh, a, a less susceptible population, that the PKPD index we aim for associated with better outcomes is still the same, but we need to have a higher concentration of drug relative to that MIC uh, to ensure we still achieve that PKPD index. Uh, the other thing I thought I'd just touch on quite briefly is about the, the toxicity of, of drugs. And of course, this has nothing to do with the MIC. This is just purely concentration uh, because most of the, the drug-related toxicities that uh, we see with drugs are concentration-dependent. Of course, some are concentration-independent, but Increasingly, we're seeing with um, beta-lactams a better understanding of, of neurological complications, and we've even um, seen a number of papers coming out which are defining threshold concentrations associated with an increased likelihood of a patient manifesting a neurological uh, adverse effect. And so that's just another thing to be thinking about from pharmacodynamic perspective too. Jason, we often uh, assume that a lot of the problems that we're going to have with antibiotic dosing or drug dosing in general in critical illness is overexposing the patient to, to therapy. But there is an equal issue and often just as important uh, in terms of underdosing patients. What do we know about that in terms of antibiotic therapy? So we have learned a lot from the laboratory firstly, whereby you know, in very controlled experiments, we can expose uh, a colony of bacteria to exactly the same kind of concentrations that would occur in patients. So dynamic changing concentrations over a, 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 relevant, a clinically relevant duration of time, five or seven days, for example, and we can look at the emergence of resistant bacteria that can occur. Uh, this is something which uh, there is a really small difference in exposure which is associated with that scenario whereby you have emergence of resistant bacteria which typically have just been um, there's some single point mutation that occurs and that is enough to change their susceptibility to the extent whereby they can then uh, become the dominant species and then grow out to have very large concentrations. Uh, uh, but if we get the dose right, uh, the exposure right, then we actually can suppress that occurring. So you don't see those high um, exposure. Uh, more resistant bacteria coming through. So that's the first point that in a laboratory situation, you know, it's very well defined for all antimicrobial classes. But it's really difficult to show that clinically. And so uh, at the moment, it, is, it hasn't ever been studied uh, using a dose which tries to, to suppress emergence of resistance. Uh, 
so that's the first point. What has been studied, though, is a, a dose which is able to, which achieves a particular threshold concentration, which is thought to be associated with a higher likelihood of clinical cure. And there's a number of studies for all different drug classes which show that if you are above that threshold concentration, then you have a higher likelihood of, of um, a, a good treatment outcome. And that exists in all infection syndromes, pneumonia, bloodstream infection, intra-abdominal infection, skin soft tissue infection as well. Uh, so, you know, that's something which is very clear. So underdosing can be considered in terms of two levels. Firstly, clinical outcome, but also in terms of resistance emergence. And we know a lot of it in the context of uh, clinical cure, and we're hoping to learn more about in terms of resistance emergence as well. How common is it that we underdose our antibiotic therapies in critically ill patients? Yeah, so that's a really tough question to answer. And I say that because it depends on what target concentration that you uh, are considering. Uh, in a study like uh, the DALI study, so the DALI study was a study that we ran in Europe around 2010-2011, uh, recruited 450 patients, 68 intensive care units, uh, and recruited eight different beta-lactame antibiotics, um, vancomycin, ticoplanin, as well as glycopeptides, uh, and uh, some uh, antifungals as well. Now, it, with the beta-lactams for that, this is where there's a little bit of uncertainty about what should our target concentration be. Everyone certainly agrees that it must be at least 50% time above MIC, which is a concentration maintained above the MIC for at least half of the dose interval. And in that study, it was 16% of patients didn't achieve that target. <clears throat> and they were uh, three times more likely to fail treatment. <clears throat> so that told us two interesting things. Firstly, that there's a, you know, it's really quite poor that you know, it's such a high proportion of patients aren't achieving that concentration, and uh, it's quite concerning that they're failing treatment. When we consider in the context of those previous studies that we were talking about, so the, which have defined a threshold concentration which is associated with better outcomes, it was closer to 50% of patients that weren't achieving those concentrations. Now, because each of those re reflect an increased probability of clinical cure, it didn't necessarily mean that all those patients failed treatment, uh, but certainly they are at greater risk of failing treatment for not achieving that. Uh, so if we use the, the beta-lactams as, a, as a, a classical cohort of drugs, which, you know, of course, they're the most commonly prescribed antimicrobials that we use, you know, it's anywhere between 20 and 50% of patients will be underdosed depending on what your, your target uh, is that you choose to apply. So it's quite a big problem. Jason, some of your recent work has explored this issue in patients with pneumonia. What specifically about pneumonia um, is there in relation to this issue? So those kind of studies which I referred to, which essentially define a clinical pharmacodynamic threshold, they exist for uh, pneumonia. But what doesn't exist is any data to say what specific dose an individual patient needs to ensure that they're going to get a therapeutic exposure of drug. Now, that can either be defined at uh, the level of the blood, which is what we typically do because it's more easy to measure. But what would be better to measure, of course, is the infection site. Uh, and that's why pneumonia is such a, an interesting and challenging area because understanding concentrations at the site of infection should make us a lot more sensitive with our dosing in the context of what the patient truly needs and will increase the likelihood of them having a therapeutic exposure more generally because 
Typically, when we're relying on blood concentrations, we just make that assumption, well, that's going to be sufficient for what is at the infection site. But because if we think about the, the anatomy of the lung, you know, it has um, many different um, barriers which prevent diffusion of molecules from the bloodstream into the interstitial fluid, the epithelial lining fluid. And so you end up with, with different concentrations there, often lower concentrations than you would see in the blood. Um, classical examples of uh, beta-lactams which have uh, lower exposures of drug in the uh, epithelial lining fluid, uh, meropenem has a mean penetration of 40% into the epithelial lining fluid. But it has a variability whereby the, that range of concentrations can be anywhere between 2% and 180% of that which is measured in the blood. So this is actually the bigger problem, not that we know that they get, have lower concentrations in the, the lung, it's who has lower concentrations in the lung and then trying to work out, okay, now that we know who that is, we can actually individualise a better uh, dosing approach for that person so they have a higher likelihood of getting better concentrations uh, in the lung. Yeah. A lot of us will see clinically all the time the patient who they're on what you consider to be a reasonable dose uh, but they're not just not improving from a lung perspective and you know all signs suggest that it is still infection related and our common approach would be well, let's try a different drug because we think that the other one doesn't have the right level of susceptibility for that bacteria but maybe the, the drug's not penetrating and then by changing to another drug we're just hoping that that one's going to be to penetrate a little bit better uh, whether or not um, that ends up manifesting and being uh, the case, you know, it's difficult to say, but, you know, I, this is where I think that, you know, we, we can be cleverer with what we do with our dosing by being aware of, you know, some basic histories about the patient and real, re realising what the context of that is in terms of their dosing needs. So patients that maybe um, have a history of chronic lung pathology, which may be associated with some sort of fibrosis product scarring or something, you know, they're classical patients that will have uh, lower lung concentrations than others. And so, you know, we probably should be pushing the dose uh, empirically in them because of that, um, the presence of something like that. Jason, presumably there could be still a role for plasma um, level uh, measurements in terms of restricting the potential complications associated with pushing those additional doses. Is any work being done in that sort of area? Uh, so a lot of the studies which have defined whether or not there is uh, toxicity associated with a drug uh, at a particular exposure always describe in the context of plasma concentrations. Now, again, you know, it's not the, the uh, anatomical site whereby that, um, that toxicity is being mediated from, but it does tell us something and, uh, you know, it does give us a probability that there of a person developing a toxicity associated with that exposure. So it is still it is still meaningful. Just like in the context of treating an infection, you know, blood concentrations are better than just dose. You know, they're getting us a little bit closer to where we need to be. We're just not quite right there. Just like blood concentrations for neurological toxicity and maybe seizure risk or encephalopathy risk, you know, blood tell, tell us something more than what just dose alone does, but uh, they, they may not be quite as sensitive as sensitive as if we were measuring it a little bit closer to that site. So, yeah, there is definitely uh, a scope for more data 
and closer data, which is to where the um, this part of the body is that we're we're particularly trying to measure that effect. So yes, Jason, what are some of the strategies that are being explored to overcome this issue? So um, two, well, the most important one I think, which is really topical for critical care at the moment, is in the context of beta lactams, use of prolonged infusions now. Uh, Australia has really led the way with the, the Bling research program. So many people know of Bling is you know, the beta-lactam infusion group, uh, which studies a continuous infusion of meropenem and piperacillin tazobactam. So, you know, patient will have a clinical indication for either of those drugs and they're randomised to receive that by either continuous infusion or just standard intermittent dosing. As many of you will know, Bling 3 is currently underway. It's recruited over 5,000 patients are nearly 100 ICUs in six countries that are participating in this. And uh, it's looking at patients with sepsis, so not just pneumonia, but sepsis, and uh, aiming to see what day 90 mortality is and whether it's, it's different between those two groups. So that's going to tell us a lot. And the whole uh, fundamental basis for why continuous infusions are being tested really does stem from a, a pathway of research which started with uh, laboratory-based studies all the way to the kinetic studies, which our group's done a lot of work in, to the early pilot clinical trials, which, of course, came from our group as well, and then uh, the Phase 2B, Bling 2 study, and now the Bling 3 study. So it's really quite exciting because all of the data from the laboratory to this point now suggests that... Um, you do get more consistent therapeutic concentrations with continuous infusion. Uh, in, um, in two meta-analyses conducted by different author groups in 2016 and 2017, one published in the Blue Journal, the other in Lancet Infectious Diseases, they're almost exactly the same point estimates showing improved survival, hospital survival, uh, when patients were receiving uh, continuous or prolonged infusion. Uh, so, you know, it, it really is something which we do hope is going to, to show that it is possible to improve outcomes for these patients. And so we spent a lot of time talking about that one because, you know, it has the strongest body of work underpinning it. There is also um, therapeutic drug monitoring of drugs generally, but certainly for beta-lactams, that's an emerging field. And the rationale for that's exactly the same as it is for bling, that, you know, you have altered drug concentrations. Well, there's two different ways you could go about trying to improve the exposure of patients is either you can measure the concentration, adjust the dose, which is what therapy drug monitoring is, or you can just try and use a continuous or prolonged infusion and hope that that's just going to increase the proportion of patients that achieve that therapeutic concentration. So um, that's the, the other approach. Finally, though, uh, in the context of pneumonia, there's nebulized antibiotic therapy. Uh, which is a way to try and deliver antibiotic locally to the site of infection uh, with a view to um, increasing the effectiveness or, and the likelihood of achieving effective concentrations of, of antimicrobial. And there's actually been a lot of these studies that have been done in non-critically ill patients, uh, cystic fibrosis, bronchiectasis, etc. cetera. Uh, but the studies which have been done in critically ill patients tend to have not been methodologically very strong and those which have been done actually haven't shown a benefit. Now, there's a, a number of reasons why that might be the case uh, and there's an ongoing area of research which is led by an intensivist at the Royal Brisbane Women's Hospital, uh, J.H. Danani, who has 
um, a fellowship and some grants to uh, explore that, uh, looking at ways to try and improve the, the, the dose that's delivered to the lungs of drug because uh, it's considered that maybe not much of the drug is getting to the lungs and that's certainly what a lot of the preliminary data shows. Jason, aside from the evidence, there seems to have been some reluctance to adopt inhalational antibiotics in the critical care sphere. What are the reasons for this? Well, I think that everyone just wants trial data, uh, which shows that it works. Uh, it's not uh, an intervention without risk. Uh, you know, the, the likelihood of it, um, a patient patient developing some local irritation to the, the airways, causing a, a bronchoconstriction, uh, which may affect the ability to ventilate that patient, um, may affect their general oxygenation. You know, that's something which has been quite well described. I don't want to say it's quite well described in the context of it's very common, but I mean that it does happen. And so, uh, you know, it's not without risk intervention. So you want to be making sure that if you're doing something like this, that you're doing it because it has a high likelihood of resulting in a good outcome. And, you know, if the ventilator settings uh, in the context of the nebulization approach aren't very well matched, then you can have a droplet size essentially, which is too large. And so it just ends up impacting, you know, at the back of the throat, um, you know, if it's, you know, or, or uh, just it impacts on the, 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 the tube, the plastic tubing of the you know, mechanically ventilated patient as well. Uh, and uh, so, you know, you just may not get any of the drug delivered to the lung. And so that's why it's really important to have done all of the preclinical studies to work out, well, what is the right way to make sure that we get that two to five micron range of, uh, of droplets such that they're more likely to be able to, to go with airflow down to the, um, the depths of the lung where the infection is uh, and to be able to el elicit that um, microbiological effect. And I just don't think that that has been done particularly well. I think that there is an awareness that we need to do better with that, but I don't think it's been done very well. Uh, if I could speak a little bit about our own experience at the Royal Brisbane Women's Hospital, you know, it never enters our mind to routinely put someone onto nebulised antimicrobials, but there are times whereby we will try it. Uh, and classical examples are when someone has a multi-drug resistant pneumonia, which has <clears throat> very um, has a, a susceptibility profile, which is aminoglycoside heavy and maybe doesn't include any of the beta-lactams or meropenem, et cetera. And so we, we would use that to um, as, a, as a double approach to IV aminoglycoside plus nebulized aminoglycoside, trying to make sure that we have an increased likelihood of getting drug to the infection site. Uh, the other time we might use it is when that, you know, the pathology of the lung and the, you know, the imaging of the lung suggests that, you know, we're not getting very good ventilation to some distal parts of the lung or alternatively that um, we may be ventilating it quite well, but there are some parts whereby um, the we're concerned about drug penetration, in which case we'll also try nebulised antibiotic for just a very short course then, uh, particularly if there's been some sort of persistent growth despite uh, ongoing IV antibiotics and patient not improving. Uh, now, that's really just us adapting to an individual situation as opposed to something which we protocolise will always do. Uh, but um, yeah, that's examples of times whereby we'll use it. And, you know, we'll only use it... At, less than a handful of times per year. 
whereas some European centres, you know, they use it a lot. Uh, and, you know, I don't mean that disparagingly, but they've just, they have an experience with it, which they're very comfortable with. And so they're very comfortable to use that um, with a lot greater frequency. Jason, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast and shedding your insights again into this fascinating area. Thanks, Todd. Always a pleasure. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to all our great podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading the free app. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.